This week in KMA Land, lots of talk but no action on Montgomery County's pipeline ordinance. Shen Council snuffs out vaping sales age restrictions. Priscillius announces retirement as Fremont County EMA Director. KMA Land lawmakers hear tax bill concerns. And the bond issue vote looms in the Clarinda School District. I'm Mike Peterson. Another chapter in the continuing debate over carbon sequestration projects took place in Montgomery County this week. But this latest episode ended with a cliffhanger. After months of work, the county's Board of Supervisors held a long-awaited public hearing Tuesday morning on the ordinance regulating pipelines carrying hazardous liquid materials, such as Summit Carbon Solutions' proposed Midwest Express pipeline planned to run through portions of Montgomery County and others through western Iowa. Residents aired their concerns regarding proposed pipeline projects and pushed for the ordinance's passage either in person at the courthouse boardroom or via Zoom. Vicki Rossander, a member of the county's Planning and Zoning Commission, or former member, says the ordinance is designed to protect the county's citizens during the pipeline's construction phase, completion and operation, and decommissioning and removal. She says it also addresses what is required from pipeline companies to prepare the county in case of a rupture. Please don't let the pipeline company tell us that ruptures and accidents never happen regarding the transportation of hazardous materials. Every day we are now witnessing on our televisions what is happening in East Palestine, Ohio. We can clearly see that hazardous chemicals are transported over vast areas of the country and spills and ruptures happen. And there is never such a thing as being overly prepared. Other speakers challenged the county's proposed ordinance. Rick Taylor chairs the county's Board of Adjustment. Taylor questioned language regarding the board's responsibilities in approving conditional use permits. Looking at the pipeline's proposed map, he says the board may be tasked with ruling on more than two dozen applications. My board is a volunteer appointed board. Uh, this is going to become quite a job for And I'm concerned about that. And I'm concerned about the pressure it might put on the zoning administrator the way it's currently written. I would like to see some modifications uh, made within here to maybe reduce the burden put upon my board. I don't know if that's possible. Eric Welch is a pipeline engineer manager with Summit Carbon Solutions overseeing the project's construction in Iowa, Nebraska, and Minnesota. Welch says his company is already under tight state and federal pipeline regulations, and the county's proposed ordinance would, in effect, stop the pipeline's advancement into Montgomery County. We understand the counties have questions and concerns. The representatives from Summit Carbon would be happy to meet with those representatives of the county to answer those questions. However, Summit does not believe that the ordinance is appropriate as a matter of policy, and more importantly, we know that it would conflict with both state and federal laws. Welch also urged the board to delay action until the outcome of a lawsuit regarding an identical ordinance recently approved in Shelby County. If Shelby County wins the lawsuit, Welch claims the project's portion stretching from Montgomery County to Green Plains' Shenandoah plant would not be built. He adds a summit victory would signal a similar outcome in a Montgomery County lawsuit. A trial is not expected until January 2024 at the earliest. After considerable discussion, Supervisor Donna Robinson called for delaying action on the ordinance's first reading. I know that this would be disappointing to many, but I also realize that, as we said, there's litigation that is not going to happen until January of 2024. We're starting next week. Tomorrow we start March of 2023. Mm -hmm. we, we do have time, and I think time is on our side. I think it's better to do it right 
and to do it clearly. By unanimous vote, the supervisors set aside the first reading. Officials hope the delay will give the county time to review the ordinance, particularly questions regarding setback regulations and the Board of Adjustment's role in pipeline regulations. Provisions setting age limits on vaping or nicotine product sales in Shenandoah went up in smoke Tuesday night. By a 3-2 vote, the Shenandoah City Council rejected the first reading of an amendment to Chapter 41 of the city's public health and safety ordinances, setting an age restriction of 21 for entering businesses selling vaping or nicotine materials and establishing simple misdemeanor fines for clerks, retailers, and underage persons purchasing the materials. City Attorney Milan Sorensen says Shenandoah Police asked the city to draft the amendment after a business selling such products recently opened in the community. Currently, he says the city has no age restrictions to enforce. Prior to this ordinance, there was no remedy. There was no, no uh, ordinance that addressed this. Prior to this ordinance, there was no shop in town that sold primarily tobacco. If there's another shop that comes into town that sells mm -hmm. primarily tobacco and tobacco boy, it will apply to them too. Local business owner Mike Ide attacked the proposed amendment, calling the language confusing. Ide says he has no intentions of selling vaping or tobacco products to persons under 21. Does it seem to be an issue about 21 to purchase? Because that's just the law. I mean, I'm not trying to sell to children. I'm not trying to, you know, sell to anyone under 21. It's just the wording of how the fines in this can can happen over, you know, like I said, if a person wants to bring their child in there, it's sub-zero weather out, and then all of a sudden, hey, the cop happens to be driving by and say, oh, hey, someone came in there with their three-year-old kid, now I'm going to find everybody in the store. Is there a kind of, you know, so that's where I'm curious of how we can word that different. Kathy Zilfestri also spoke against the amendment, saying Ide's business was being unfairly singled out. But it's like it's they're getting singled out because they sell tobacco because it's state law you have to be 21 but it's also state law you have to be 21 to be in a bar and drink but yet that's okay if you're under 21 so i guess why is it not okay for them but it's okay for an under 21 to be in a bar and the cops can't go in and enforce that i guess shenandoah police sergeant grant booker says his department needed a deterrent against youth vaping problems i'm out of the school four times three times a week citing juveniles for tobacco products, okay? And trying to keep kids out of the store that that do that, keep the traffic off the main street. Of, if, next thing I know, I got 10, 20-inch BMX bikes parked outside on the, on the street because they want to go in and just kind of see around the store. You know, that's going to help deter that as well. After the public hearing lasting approximately 40 minutes, Council Members John Eric Bratner, Rita Gibson, and Richard Jones voted against the amendment, while well, council members Tony Graham and Kim Swank voted in favor. In an interview on KMA's Morning Line program Wednesday morning, City Administrator A.J. Lyman says the proposed amendment was intended for all businesses selling such products in the community. I know that the business in question right now that would be immediately affected by it is voluntarily complying with, you know, won't sell to anybody under 21. And it was, I would say, less about that, more about, you know, we probably should have a rule on the books that, that addresses this issue. Uh, going forward. I'd suggested an amendment in which persons under 21 could enter such establishments when accompanied by parents or guardians. Lyman asked whether the proposal could return to the council with that amendment suggested by I. Well, I haven't had a chance to talk to everybody about it to see you know, what's in the realm of the possible and what's worth pursuing. 
Um, but we'll we'll certainly look at that, but I don't know what will actually happen from that yet without having talked to everybody. At least one council member balked at the suggestion Tuesday night. Councilman Kim Swank joined Councilman Tony Graham in voting in favor of the amendment, as I told you earlier. In an exchange with Ide, Swank questioned how business owners could verify whether an adult is a parent or guardian. How are you going to know they're a guardian? They're going to carry a certificate around? Oh, yeah. Are we talking about... Uh, Something like a minor, like under 10, or are we talking like a teenager? I'm talking a minor, minor, child. Like a 10-year-old child? I mean, because you, you look around the community, right. there is tons of people who have been married, divorced, wow. married, divorced. They have yours, mine, and our kids. How are you going to do that if you're just at checking names? I, that's just my question. I, I don't right. know. I, I, I think you're getting into a whole big hassle there. In other business, Shenandoah fire officials seek a new tool in helping defray some of the cost of battling fires. At that same meeting, the council set a public hearing for March 14th at 6 p.m. on a proposed amendment to the city's fire protection ordinance. Under the amendment, the fire department could collect insurance to cover some of the fire's expenses. Shenandoah Fire Chief Justin Marshall told the council that the proposal is based in some of the larger fires his department has handled over the years. It's not an uncommon thing. A lot of cities do it. This would not be billing citizens. We would not go collecting this. It would either, if it's in the policy, we, we will not collect it if it's there, and if it's not, then we move on. The chief says the department's ultimate goal is to break even on expenses and not sacrifice services. One of KMA Land's veteran emergency officials is calling it a career later this summer. Mike Cresselius recently announced his retirement as the county's emergency management coordinator, effective August 8th. Cresselius tells KMA News he decided on his retirement several years ago, but officially informed the County Emergency Management Commission last year of his desire to retire and begin finding a successor. During his tenure, which began in 2008, Cresselius dealt with various storms, including multiple tornadoes and a blizzard. But most notable are the two Missouri River floods in 2011 and 2019. Now, in 2011, Cresselius says the county was lucky enough to be well prepared for the event from the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. However, he recalled some early skepticism and the evacuation order was made a few weeks before Memorial Day weekend west of Interstate 29. Initially, a lot of people didn't take this very seriously. I think what really opened up some folks' eyes out on the bottom was when uh, Pat Sheldon, who was commission chairman, him and his family, his, him and his wife and him and his parents, and his brother has farm property out there, when they started moving everything over Memorial Day weekend to high ground, I think people decided then they, maybe we need to take these guys seriously. However, Griselius says 2019 was a different story, and the county had little warning of how severe the flooding would be. In fact, Griselius says he was at a conference in Des Moines the day before the river began flowing over the levee between Bartlett and Hamburg. I got a phone call from... Uh, an acquaintance with the National Weather Service hydrologist telling me what was going, what they were looking at, what was going to happen here. I told my wife when I got up to the room, I said, make sure you get a good night's sleep. I said, we're packing up and going home in the morning because I cannot stay up here when I, know, I can't stay up here with a clear conference when I can see what the uh, Corps of Engineers and everybody's getting ready to release the people in my county. I said, we have to go home. I got to be with my people. Succeeding Cresselius as Fremont County's Emergency Management Coordinator is Clayton Long. 
A lifelong Fremont County resident, Long currently resides outside of Thurman and has also lived near Sydney. Upon graduating from Trainer High School in 2011, Long enlisted in the U.S. Marine Corps for four years. Following his service, Long earned a bachelor's degree in emergency and disaster management from Northwest Missouri State University. Long was recently hired by the County Emergency Management Commission to succeed Cresselius upon his retirement. Long tells KMA News he sees the job as an opportunity to give back to his community. Being from the area, I was interested in that and got a passion for this this area here in Fremont County and the people in it. And wanted to do the best job I could to make sure that the people were uh, protected or somebody somebody looking out. Residents have a chance to meet with Long at the Fremont County Disaster Coalition's meeting Sunday at 2 p.m. at the Washadi Lodge in Wabonzi State Park near Hamburg. Still to come, a preview of the special election on bonds. Clarenda School Bonds. Stay tuned. Discussion over a proposed change in Iowa's tax system took center stage at last week's legislative briefings in Shenandoah and Clarinda. Local officials assembled at both events last Saturday aired concerns over Senate Study Bill 1125. Among other things, the bill would eliminate the local option sales and service tax, raise retail sales and use taxes to 7%, and distribute a portion of the tax revenues to local governments. An Iowa Senate Ways and Means subcommittee recommended amendments and passage of the bill late last month. Clarinda Mayor Craig Hill is among those voicing concerns over the bill. We have a local option sales tax in our communities. We have brought that to our voters. They have approved it. We collect it. We use it upon our municipalities or our distributors, and we use the funds. It's home rule. I believe the state has always loved home rule. We, it's something that we have supported in this state, and now you're taking the money from us and going to hold it in a central location and then give it back to us as we see fit or as you see fit. Likewise, Shenandoah Mayor Roger McQueen says eliminating the local option tax would have a detrimental effect on municipal budgets. We have used the voter-approved LOSST to reduce property taxes and invest in capital projects. And we're concerned that a statewide tax would lead to a revenue reduction for our communities. Greg Connell is executive vice president of the Shenandoah Chamber and Industry Association. Connell questions the attitude state officials are taking with city and county governments. You know, it, it seems to me like the administration in the state now, because you've got a $2 billion surplus, seems that everybody else out in the country in these cities are inefficient. Oh my God, you got $10.2 billion in COVID money. It's like winning the lottery and the guy says, boy, what a great businessman that person is. So please don't put us in a position that we have to start cutting services. State Senator Tom Shipley is among the Southwest Iowa lawmakers meeting with officials from Adams, Cass, Ringgold, Taylor, and Union counties, as well as Montgomery counties in Lenox recently regarding the proposed legislation. Uh, Shipley says it'll take legislators a long time to hash out this tax bill and others. In the Republican caucus, there are many people who have great angst with what this is proposed to do. It's going to be a long discussion. It's already been a heated discussion. Though a bill lacked a companion piece in the Iowa House, State Representative Tom Moore says he supports local control over taxes and other issues to a point. Believe me, I'm 100% about as little as the state has to do, the better. Okay? 100%. There are times when we've just got to say, no, we've got to stop this and we've got to do a blanket policy for everybody.
Friday was the legislature's so-called funnel deadline in which bills failing to make it out of a committee were dead for the 2023 legislative session. Clarinda School District voters face a decision this coming week on the future of the school district's facilities. On Tuesday, voters will decide on a $14 million bond issue to make a number of changes at Clarinda's middle school and high school building, where space is really the final frontier. Included in the proposal are new classroom construction and renovation of current classrooms designed to address the complex's space shortage and take the middle school high school building where it's never gone before. Clarinda School Superintendent Jeff Privey discussed the bond issue with KMA News as part of a special series of reports. Right now we have two mobile classrooms that are out in our parking area to house kids because we're short on space. The new building would bring in six new classrooms, which is two more for future expansion if we would need that for the high school. So we need minimum of four right now. We're going to we're asking the voters to approve six, and that would create a new secure entrance along with that at the high school. Also included a renovation of the 712 building science and family consumer science rooms and upgrading the building's restrooms. Privia says the renovations would provide some separation between the middle school and high school grades. We'd like to pull those middle school students into their own section so they'll be into that new middle school area for at the high school. That would just be for them and um, there would be less mingling with older students. It does save us on travel, those kind of things. If we would move those kids back down, wouldn't, uh, you know, we wouldn't have teachers traveling then. So it's really advantageous for us to have them at the high school because those are the same teachers that they get to use. Another ballot question involves a proposed voted physical plant and equipment levy covering other projects, including the renovation of the Career and Technical Education Building at the 712 Complex, an area of Privia says hasn't been touched in 20 years. With welding, electricity, building trades, um, woodwork, those kind of programs, we're seeing an uptick in kids wanting to take those. But we're also seeing a lack of educators that are able to teach those classes. So it's kind of, we want to build a program so when we can get a teacher, we have the ability to have kids in those rooms and we're able to move forward. Other projects are planned for Clarinda's pre-K-6 facility, including those addressing safety concerns. One of the projects covered under the voted PEPL involves construction of a secure entryway. Privia says the entrance is in need of a better stopgap measure for safety. When a person enters the building, the office is a hallway away from the front door. What we'd like to do is get that a lot closer so when parents come into the building or visitors come to the building, they would really be checking in at the office as soon as they come in the door. We would have that stopgap measure for us. Obviously, the doors would be locked and we'd still have our vestibule, but we would be able to actually talk to those people without them gaining any extra access to the building. Another big need of the pre-K-6 building involves improved heating and air conditioning, just one of the needs highlighted by the original SiteLogic survey. First thing that came up with our HVAC at the elementary was dated. It's really in need of repair. Um, that hasn't been kept up to date. Now, now that um, we can come up with a bond issue, uh, hopefully we'll take care of those needs. 
Also included among the pre-K-6 projects covered under the $14 million bond issue is renovation of the East Office administrative space into classrooms and construction of a new early childhood center. Previous is the center would meet the needs of younger children entering school. At least a third of our students that come into kindergarten have not been in an accredited preschool program. So it's really important for us to give kids that good start. We want to build a um, new area for them that allows us to hire another teacher. We'd have room for them. Additionally, the Early Childhood Center would allow the district to provide wraparound child care services. As far as the impact on taxes, ballot question one, the $14 million bond issue, amounts to a property tax increase of $2.70 per $1,000 valuation. Question two concerns a $10 million physical plant and equipment levy of $1.34 per $1,000 valuation to cover the projects not included in the bond issue we just talked about. Well, Privia says it's the first bond issue referendum in the district in three decades. We haven't done anything for the buildings in about 30 years. The last bond issue was ran in 1997. They built a middle school addition on at the elementary, and we've obviously outgrown that already. And the reason we've outgrown these some of our buildings is because of the classes that we have to offer. And besides the impact on taxes, another question Clarenda District patrons are asking involves the plans for two facilities not covered in the building plans, the McKinley Central Office Building and the former Shopco Building. Privia says the district plans to dispose of both buildings if the bond issue in Pebble pass. In discussions with the board, they would really like to be on selling those buildings, whether they would go to the city or they would go to a private entity. We would be selling the Shopco building and trying to decide what to do with this building, which would be we would let that go back to to wherever it would go. A 60% supermajority is required for the bond issue's passage, while the Pebble needs only a simple majority. Polls are open Tuesday from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. at the Clarinda Lead Public Library and at the Newmarket Community Center. You can view a video version of this series on the Clarinda School Bond Issue Referendum online at kmaland.com. KMA Land public health officials plan to continue tracking COVID-19 despite upcoming changes in state reporting. Beginning April 1st, the Iowa Department of Health and Human Services will no longer require positive COVID tests to be reported to the Iowa Public Health Division and will remove the COVID-19 dashboard from the HHS website. However, Page County Public Health Administrator Richard Mullen says his department and others will continue to track the virus on a regional basis. Mullen reacted to the state's reporting change on KMA's Morning Line program Monday morning. We can continue to track the numbers with COVID. It won't be specific to Page County. And I can pull potential data from other sites such as CDC if I want to have county-driven data. You know, based on the accuracy of that data, of course, with all the at-home tests that are being done, it will be highly skewed. Mullen adds COVID numbers will be included in the state's weekly report with other respiratory illnesses. Additionally, President Biden recently declared an end to the national COVID emergencies as of May 11th. Mullen says that announcement may impact individuals considering getting COVID vaccinations. You know, the people who are maybe on the fence considering getting either the primary vaccine or the booster, the bivalent booster, it might slow that process down. But through our offices, we're just going to continue to provide that, that education and then offer, you know, as long as we possibly can, a site for them to come and get that either primary or bivalent booster. But it really comes down to that, you know, as long as it's being educated and that health education is provided to the communities, people can make a health care decision and based on the information we're providing. Mullen and his office has reduced the number of monthly COVID vaccination clinics from two to one. 
The next clinic is March 20th from 3.30 to 5 p.m. at the County Public Health Office in Clarinda. Clarinda's fire truck fleet is whole again now that a new truck has arrived. Back in 2021, the Clarinda Fire Department ordered a new pumper truck to replace a unit that's 35 years old. After a long wait, the $506,000 vehicle is finally in service. Clarinda Fire Chief Roger Williams told KMA News the new truck is a major upgrade over the 1988 model. We need something newer. We'd like to have one that's got quad cabs. We can get in the wintertime, we can get guys in there out of the elements when it's cold at a winter fire. Some we can get in there to get some rehab. Like to have a light tower. Just some more improvements to a newer truck. It's more reliable. Williams says supply issues caused the delay in the new truck's manufacture and delivery. With uh, I know COVID, you know, at the time there's been a supply chain issue with all fire stuff. I think with a lot of supply issues, but uh, the chassis was a big delay for us. That that was the big thing to get started and. Uh, it's just been a long process for us. With bigger chassis, more room for gear, and a light tower and upgraded equipment, Williams says a truck is available for a variety of situations. While saying they're excited to have the new truck, the chief adds he doesn't hope they have to use it right away. That wraps up this week in KMA Land. Be listening each week at this time for This Week in KMA Land. And for more information all the time, log on to KMALand.com, where you can also hear this program in its entirety. From the entire KMA News team, this is Mike Peterson. Thanks for joining us. Have a great weekend. This has been a presentation of KMA News.